This is Interviews, a podcast from the National Academy of Sciences that provides first-person accounts of the lives and work of Academy members. In this series of one-on-one conversations, scientists talk about what inspired them to pursue the careers they chose and describe some of the most fascinating aspects of their research. Susan Taylor says she dreams about molecules, but she never planned to work on them. The Wisconsin-born biochemist intended to be a doctor until love led her in a different direction, and she never looked back. Taylor is known for having unraveled the molecular structure of protein kinase, an enzyme that helps turn on and off some of the most important processes in the human body. Her work has given other scientists the tools they needed to understand the structure and role of other kinases and how to use them to develop new, more effective treatments for disease. Susan Taylor is a professor of pharmacology, chemistry, and biochemistry at the University of California, San Diego. She was elected to the National Academy of Sciences in 1996. My name is Susan Taylor. Um, I'm a professor of chemistry and biochemistry and also pharmacology at the University of California, San Diego. And I'm basically a protein chemist who works on signaling molecules. So I grew up in Wisconsin and uh, lived there till I was about in junior high, and then my family moved to Cleveland, so I was in Milwaukee, and then um, went back to Wisconsin for uh, my undergraduate studies. So I consider myself from Wisconsin. Can you describe the neighborhood where you grew up and what it was like? Well, the neighborhood I grew up in, in um, well, they were very different, actually, in Milwaukee and in Cleveland. I grew up on the north side of um, Milwaukee, near Capitol Drive, it was a middle-class neighborhood, um, very cold winters. Uh, my grandparents were from Czechoslovakia, and, and uh, they lived nearby. My other grandparents lived in a small town outside of Milwaukee called Waukesha. So we had a very um, family-oriented, both my parents were only children, and so it was my sister and and me and uh, my grandparents spent a lot of time with the grandparents, which was a very special way to grow up and learned a lot about uh, different cultures from, from the grandparents. I spent a lot of time, actually, when I was little, going with my grandparents in Waukesha. My, my grandpa would come in to watch the fight on television, and then I'd go back with him on Friday night, and I'd stay there. He, re- he was a butcher. He ran a butcher shop there, and so I would stay there, and then my parents would come out on Sunday. So I spent a lot of time in, in Waukesha, lived right across the street from a big park there, and so I, I had a very special childhood, which I think now is unusual that um, children spend so much time with their grandparents. So, When did you first become interested in science? I was always interested, I was kind of a tomboy when I grew up, so I I never played with dolls much or anything, and I was always interested in um, being a doctor. From the time I was little, I would play doctor, and so I I would set up my little chemistry things, and and so I always wanted to be a doctor, as long as I could remember, and I I, uh, was a pretty wild, I was a pretty good tomboy, I I liked to... um, was a pretty good fighter, actually, with the boys, and so I had to go sit in the coat room in kindergarten several times and things like that. But anyway, I always was interested in being a doctor. That's what I wanted to do, and so I, I always had a science focus, and um, I don't know where I ever got that from, but I did. What did your parents do? 
My uh, dad was an engineer. He originally began as a uh, high school teacher of science and music. He played the violin as well. And um, then he went back to get his engineering degree at Madison. And my mom was a teacher as well. They met at a very small town, Mondovi, Wisconsin, um, both as high school teachers. And my mom uh, did not work when we were little, but then she eventually became a librarian and went back to librarian school and was very much involved with the libraries in Cleveland and uh, an avid reader and founded a little library up in the Adirondacks where we, they had a family home up there and um, founded a little uh, Friends of the Library, that's hers. There's still a little a memo, her little plaque to her there. So they were, my mom was, when we were growing up, my mom was the Girl Scout leader and she was very much involved in the PTA and all those kinds of activities. So she was very involved in that, but she never worked until we went to Cleveland and, and um, when, after I really left, I think, to go to college and she started really being active with the libraries. So I imagine that you went to college, uh, that you went to college thinking that you were going to be a doctor. And then I did. What happened? <laughs> So I went to the University of Wisconsin. Actually, my choice was to go to Wellesley or to go to Wisconsin, and I think my mother never completely forgave me for not going to Wellesley, but I went to Wisconsin, and I I took science classes from the beginning. I had a wonderful freshman chemistry teacher, Charles Sorum, and they were just starting there, an honors program, and so he taught the honors chemistry class, and he taught our lectures, he taught our lab, and I became a chemistry major, really, because of him, and then that was the path I was set on. I, he, he was a very important person in, at that, in that part of my life. So then once you took this, this very influential course, what mm-hmm. happened? I stayed on track of, of being a chemistry major, taking all my chemistry classes. I was... Uh, kind of a, a nerdy uh, undergrad, I think. I studied a lot. I was very serious about studying. And I just stayed on the chemistry track going through. I, You couldn't even major in biochemistry there, so um, I majored in chemistry, traditional um, chemistry. It was pretty much small classes because they had the honors program, so it was always pretty small classes. And I took biology, but I always just stayed with chemistry. I never really thought about doing any any other major. I just decided that that first year. And do you want to know why I didn't go to medical school? Well, before we get to that, um, what do you think it was that, that appealed to you so much about chemistry once you started? I don't know. If it was the analytical part of it, um, it wasn't... You know, I think with biology, you see more of the creativity of, of organisms and... and um, um, things like that, but I don't know why I like chemistry. I mean, it just did well in it, and maybe I didn't think so much. I just did well. I, I was I did very good in classes, and I, I think you just went forward. It's like, you know, back in those days, I think young people today think a lot more about what they want to do. They take often some time off after they graduate from college and perhaps work for a couple of years just to think about what do they really want to do. And I guess Back then, if you did well in something, you just continued doing well in it, and and that was somehow the direction that you took. You didn't really think about going. I don't remember spending a lot of time thinking about, did I want to major in something else? What did I want to major in? I don't remember really thinking about that much at all. So I was on track to go to medical school. I took, 
I actually worked in the summer at um, Case Western Reserve Medical School in a lab there for the summer. And I had done that the summer between my sophomore and junior year. And again, I think between, no, my sophomore and my junior year. And I spent time then talking to the dean of the medical school. Getting into medical schools was quite a bit different back in those days. About the possibility of starting medical school my senior year, not doing my senior year. And he suggested, well, you should just do your senior year because it's a lot of interesting things that you will do and just wait and start afterwards. So um, I I took my MCAT exam. So you needed to take the MCAT exams in um, May, I think, of my end of my junior year. And I had met my husband-to-be previously, but we had our first date the afternoon when I took my MCATs. And we actually were married a year and a half later, but by the time we got engaged in February, which again is a, a reflection of the times that people don't act so rashly now. <laughs> they think more about these things, and, and they really make lifetime commitments later on, not just right after you graduate from college. But it was very uh, typical that you would get married after college. It was not something I thought I was going to do. I wanted to go to medical school. But um, my husband was uh, getting his Ph.D., and he was going to be going to the National Institutes of Health to do a postdoctoral fellowship there. And I had applied to Harvard, Stanford, and Case Western Reserve, but not to Johns Hopkins. And so by the time we decided to get married, it was too late to apply to medical school at Johns Hopkins, but it was not too late to apply to graduate school. And so I thought I probably would do research anyway. And so I applied to graduate school, and I began graduate school at Johns Hopkins in um, physiological chemistry in Leninger's department. And um, always with the idea that I would eventually go back to medical school and get my MD degree. So my, my lesson that I've learned is life is that you don't plan too carefully, that you just take advantage of opportunities that come your way, and maybe you'll end up doing something different than what you thought. And I went through graduate school. I did well. And then we, my husband had an opportunity again. I followed, I followed my husband a lot. We, he had an opportunity to do a very special training program at, um, in Cambridge, England, in a new program that was called Molecular Pharmacology. And so I thought, well, it would be very interesting to live in another country for a couple of years, and then I'll go to medical school. So we went to, and I wrote very naively to two people who were working at um, the Medical Research Council Laboratory of Molecular Biology, LMB, and they were working on tRNA synthetases, tRNA, and I had really become fascinated with that area of molecular biology at that time. I worked on lipids and carbohydrates, so I knew nothing about proteins. I knew nothing about DNA or RNA. But I wrote to two people, one was Brian Hartley and one was Sidney Brenner, about whether they would have a, a position for me. And so Brian Hartley was a protein chemist, a very creative protein chemist. And he said, yes, I could join his lab. So I went to the LMB lab, which was an extraordinary place to train. I began working on proteins. I never, ever wanted to do anything different after I started working there. And it was a a wonderful environment to learn science, and I've really tried to create, recreate that kind of environment all of my life since then. 
So I ended up doing something completely different from what I carefully planned, but it's, I wouldn't ever want to be doing anything different. So once you found your way to proteins, what, what was it that captivated you there? I don't know. I think it's, um, for me, fascinating to learn the details of, I mean, I, I dream about these molecules. It's probably kind of pathetic, but, you know, and, and how you think about individual hydrogen bonds, how they make that molecule work. Um, I also, for very arbitrary reasons, started working on um, a protein called protein kinase uh, early on, very early on. It was the third one to be discovered. And it was interesting because it bound uh, nucleotides and it was allosterically regulated. And I just thought it was an interesting protein to work on. And so I started working on this very, this is one of the first kinases to be discovered, one of the simplest ones, the one that we could get a handle on, that we could stutter, study crystallographically, we could study it biochemically, we could study it using fluorescence tools. Again, it's been using a set of interdisciplinary tools to understand not just what that static structure looks like, but how does that molecule work in solution and how does it, how does it allow a cell like the liver cell to um, mobilize all the glycogen when, when blood glucose levels are low? How does it promote memory in the brain? How does it do something different in each cell? And so it's been a wonderful journey to learn about different elements of chemistry and biology through this molecule. I stayed working with this molecule all my, all my life, and yet it's taken me in, in new directions to learn about new disciplines and new technologies. I think one of the first things that we did, uh, we began sequencing it. So to understand a protein, first you need to know the order of the amino acids. And this is, uh, took a long time back in those days. Now you can just do it in seconds by sequencing the DNA. But back then you did it by hand and you would break the protein apart into little pieces and then put the peptides back together and overlap them. And, um, and so I did sequencing of this catalytic subunit. And I also took analogs, like an analog of ATP. I wanted to know where did ATP bind. And I took an analog that could covalently bind to a specific site, and I found it bound to this lysine, that's an amino acid, this particular one. And when you added ATP, you could protect it. And so then I did another chemical test, which would, like lysines are positively charged and, and um, aspartic acids are negatively charged. And I, I found that these two, one lysine and one aspartic acid, cross-linked to each other. So it's a very chemical kind of approach. And so they must be at the active site, even though it turned out they were far apart in the linear sequence. And so then what I, what I worked on and what I'm most famous for is solving the crystal structure of this catalytic subunit. And it was the first protein kinase structure to be solved. And by then we knew it was a large family and we knew there were conserved motifs that were scattered all across the protein kinase core. Um, one of them included this lysine residue. Another one included this aspartic acid residue. And they were far apart in the linear sequence, and yet you knew from the chemistry that when it was folded up into an active conformation, they must be close to each other. And so we started working on this before it was really common. Now it's almost a mandatory that you have a crystal structure. But it was the first one, and it was a... Um, 
and it's kind of an extraordinary journey that I was making large amounts of the protein, trying to crystallize it. Again, I would not have ever done this had I not had that training at the MRC lab in, in Cambridge. And so we had structure that diffracted, not well, 3.4 angstroms. That's not, you would want better than that nowadays. And we had, I had two graduate students, um, Daniel Leighton and Shen Hua Zhang, and Lin Tanang was a part of this team, and Yanis Zawatsky. And so each of the students did a different refinement. They did it separately. They traced it out. They wouldn't let me look at it along the way because they didn't want to bias it by the chemistry that I would automatically look at. And so they each did it as best they could, and then they got together, pooled their, pooled their data to see which was the way to trace the molecule, what was the best that they could do. And then we all sat down together, and this was actually at the San Diego Supercomputer Center, which we spent a lot of time there back in those days. So we all sat down together to look at this molecule. And that was probably the most extraordinary scientific day of my life because you saw it, you knew by this time that all of these protein kinases, 500 or someone, were going to fold exactly in the same way. And, and you knew what that fold was. So you could really see, you could go from the one dimension to now the three dimensions. And, of course, the first thing I looked for was that lysine and, and that aspartic acid. And there they were, right, right close by to each other. And so, as I said, that really confirmed my belief in chemistry <laughs> that, uh, that it, it was really telling us the correct story. But... That allowed us to, to trace how that molecule folded, how they all folded. Um, it happened to be an active. It was also phosphorylated itself. It showed us how that phosphate played such a critical role for making that an active enzyme. Then later, these um, now are, are very, it's a very large gene family. They're very important for disease. So we have hundreds of protein kinase structures. And so... Now, more recently, we can go back and say, okay, what can you learn from this one molecule, pKa, and, and what can you learn from comparing the whole family that you couldn't learn from one molecule? And so when we began to look at comparing all active and inactive kinases, we discovered that there's actually a very unique hydrophobic architecture that is associated with an active kinase and that it gets dynamically assembled typically in response to this single phosphorylation event. And so this now is has become adopted, really, as a way to think about the protein kinase family. And it's very important for drug discovery because it's a hydrophobic core, and drugs go to these hydrophobic pockets. And so you can begin to understand what hydrophobic pockets are associated with an active kinase or an inactive one, what drugs would go to the inactive kinase, and what would go to the active kinase. And so... That's a concept that, a chemical concept that really came from being able to compare many protein kinases. And so, you know, the, the knowledge, as I said, the, the knowledge that we've learned from this one molecule has kept growing in, in new ways that we never ever anticipated in the beginning. All of biology for, um, I think, all of us is really understanding how these complexes work in the context of the cell. It's not just individual molecules, which we can study easily in a test tube and crystallographically. How do the complexes work and how are they regulated? And that is much more challenging. Um, and how do, the, how do they work in the cell? We need to eventually understand these molecules in the cell. So that's what I'm learning to appreciate, that these work in the context of a cell and how they get turned on and off is critical for diseases. You know, if you can't turn off your kinase, it's just as important as a switch. It's as important to turn it off as to turn it on. And if you can't turn it off, 
that cell will keep growing and that many cancers, that's a cause of many cancers. They just don't stop. How have you juggled being a mother and doing all this work and how have you juggled your work life and your family life? And we haven't talked about the family. <laughs> so, um, so I have three children, uh, who, uh, one daughter, my oldest is a daughter who's now a pediatrician. My uh, second is a son who's a graphic design artist. And my youngest is 10 years difference between the youngest and the oldest. He's uh, was a physics major and a music minor. And we thought, well, maybe we'll have a real scientist, but he, uh, is involved in doing documentary films and sound in doing sound engineering with uh, documentaries and and now working with various program television programs and things so the children are all doing different things and we came from England to San Diego which was a brand new university at that time my husband was a pharmacologist second pharmacologist to be hired in the new medical school there and I did an extra postdoctoral year with another really important person in my life, um, Nathan Kaplan. And I was sequencing lactate dehydrogenase at that time. I was a protein chemist, and I worked very closely with Michael Rossman, who was at Purdue. And so he had done the crystal structure, and I was doing the sequencing. And so I would fly out to Purdue and fit it into the molecule and, and things. But I had um, Tasha, my daughter, was born two days before I think I started my faculty appointment. And we, because we'd been in England, many of our friends there had au pair girls. So we had au pair girls from different countries who came and stayed with us for a year or sometimes they stayed longer and went to school here. Um, we had a wonderful cadre of, of uh, girls who stayed in our house who became like big sisters to the children and to this day are, are really close to our families. Um, and so we lived close to school. We live, it's about, Del Mar is about four or five miles from La Jolla, so it was close by. And we always had someone in the house, which I thought was a really important thing. But the children, it just became a way of life that we were working, and the au pair girls were there, and that was how we, how we managed. And we were lucky that, that there were no major medical problems. I think you don't have any... Free time? I stopped drawing a long time ago. <laughs> you don't have a lot of free time, and I think if something goes wrong, then then you have to reevaluate. And but but we we the schools we children all went to local schools. Um, we two of the two of the children live in San Diego now. They I have three grandchildren, and every Sunday everybody comes over for dinner at our house, and so we've been able to really maintain a really close family and. And we're very lucky. I mean, we're just extraordinarily lucky. What advice would you give to a young person interested in a career in science? Well, I think I didn't worry too much about all these steps. And I think it was easy. In some ways, it was easier then because it wasn't such a program thing. I didn't worry that I wasn't going to get tenure. I just didn't really worry about it. And young people, I think, today are, there are many more options available to you. And so you plan it out. You try to be much more organized and, and planning ahead for five years. And I just find that one should just take advantage of opportunities as they come up. And sometimes it's not always what you plan that takes you on the path that you end up taking. And, and so, if anything, I, I think young people should be flexible and adapt. And it's very hard when you're adapting to two careers. We were lucky. We, we had 
some wonderful au pair girls. My husband was always supportive of my having a career. Um, so it was just never something that I ever thought I was really doing anything unusual. I look back now and I realize, yes, okay, it wasn't the ordinary thing to do. You know, I also think that for young women, it's, it is a hard thing to balance, but somehow it just manages, and I don't think there's a best time to have a child, or, and if you really don't want to have a family, that's, that's, you know, a decision that you make as well. But I worry that the tenure track, everything is so regimented, and that sometimes women are saying, you have to do either this or that, and they, they don't have a family, and... You know, life is a balance, and, and it's always, for me, having the children. Before we had the children, I'd go home and I'd read my JBC and I'd, do, I'd work at night. And then, you know, you come home and you, you read to the children, you spend time with the children, and you don't worry that you should be doing something else. And it's always kept the balanced set of priorities, I think. And you shouldn't make that either or. I, I, it makes me feel bad that young women feel they have to make a choice either or. Either I do a career or I do this. And... There are ways to make it work, and it's each it's an individual, but there's such a reward of your children and your grandchildren. I mean, those are my best experiments. <laughs> Since 1863, the nation's top scientists have been honored with membership in the National Academy of Sciences. Today, there are more than 2,500 in the NAS membership, of whom approximately 200 have won Nobel Prizes. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Interviews and invite you to join us again for another inspiring conversation.